welcome to the next edition of Atomic Ergo. I'm your host, Earl Ray Neal, and we are uh, exceptionally happy today to have our um, CEO with us, uh, Nicole Case. I am uh, very excited to spend some time with you on the podcast. I uh, know you personally. Uh, was absolutely blown away by your magnetism and your personality and your and, and just just the Nicole. Uh, so to speak, the Nicole factor, so to speak. Um, uh, she, Nicole, if you spend any time with her, she's the kind of person that just, uh, uh, you know, kind of takes over a room really when she walks in. And, and we're just so fortunate to have her have her leading uh, Ergonauts as our uh, CEO. She has a BA in political science, which is something that we actually share in common uh, from the University of Nebraska. She has an MBA. Uh, she was the membership chair uh, of HIMS in the past, I think from the San Antonio chapter. Uh, you've been really active in the Humane Society and canine, uh, for warrior, caninesforwarriors.com. That is obviously something very close to my heart. I love animals uh, very, very, very much. Uh, so if you don't mind, uh, just before we get started, uh, talk just quickly about um, our kind of our reverse sponsor, if you would, today, uh, canines, uh, caninesforwarriors.com, Nicole. Sure. So um, the the Canines for Warriors group, there's a lot, there's a number of groups out there who train um, service animals for veterans or for folks with um, disabilities or who are in need of service dogs. Um, and Canines for Warriors is one that I got involved with um, in my last corporate job. So I was, I had a, a charitable budget that um, was, it was sort of discretionary and we sponsored um, a dog through training. And at the end of it, we got this book with the pictures of the dog when they got paired with their veteran. And what I really love about this organization is, um, well, a couple of things. One is that they use dogs that come from shelters. So they call the shelters for larger dogs, which are harder to adopt anyway. And, and a service dog for, for their purposes needs to be at least 45 pounds. Um, so at the time when I started working with them, they were actually flying dogs from Texas to Florida because they were using up their local supply. Um, they've since leased uh, land from the Tex from the San Antonio Humane Society and are um, not the Humane Society, the San Antonio Animal Services, and they have built a training facility here as well. So they've doubled the impact there. But every dog that they save. Um, also saves a veteran, right? And they have fantastic statistics and scientific studies they've done that show, um, you know, reduction in substance abuse, increase in work, um, increase in social activities, and you know, just real life-saving activities that come out of these um, these service animals. So um, support any organization that does service dog training. Um, Canines for Warriors is a fantastic one to to get so behind. The website's www.caninesforwarriors.com. Uh, certainly your uh, career history is impressive. As I said, currently you're the CEO for uh, Ergonauts Performance Technologies. Uh, you were also the CEO for Federal, uh, Federal Consulting Insight Advisors. Uh, you have had um, experience uh, in uh, you know military, NGOs, those types of things. So you bring just a, a, a vast uh, 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 I guess, swath of knowledge to the job as CEO for, for Ergonaut. So um, how did you get here? Tell us a little bit about your background and sort of how you found, what's your story, I guess? 
Yeah, my, my story is, um, is it's not one of planning um, and it's not one of prediction. It's more along the lines of uh, new opportunities come along and I'm willing to take the leap. So um, I started out as an Air Force brat. I've been a military kid uh, my whole life. And um, I had kind of an atypical brat experience in that we didn't move around from the time I was in kindergarten through retirement for my dad, which was seventh grade for me. Um, so he went remote for a few years, but we had uh, we were able to stay in one place. Now, my whole my whole friend group moved every my whole friend group turned over every two years. Um, and that was a fantastic experience. And, and it was a fantastic experience to grow up in such a diverse community. Um, you know, people probably don't think it's going to be a diverse community because it's in Nebraska, but surrounding a military base, you know, we had um, just tons of diversity and, and great experience there. Um, and then I stayed on in Nebraska when it was time to go to college. Um, and I went, I ended up at uh, University of Nebraska of Omaha, um, in part because they gave me a full ride scholarship. And that seemed like a pretty good deal to me. Um, and I started out there as an education major and then had a full on life crisis at 18 in my first week of college because uh, I discovered I didn't like anything about the curriculum at all. So you went through drop and ad and ended up in a sophomore level international relations class, which I absolutely adored. Um, and I love the professor, Dr. Bacon will always be somebody who was very impactful to me. Um, and that just became my, my, my goal at that point was to finish out as a political science major. Um, Cause I knew, you know, essentially I needed just to get a degree. Um, and I worked full-time in tech while I was in college. I've worked full-time since I was 16 years old. Um, and, uh, the tech aspect and the career aspect that evolved out of that was, um, again, a, a series of sort of, um, serendipitous events that, that got me into technology and, and kept me there. My, my first technical job, um, my first actual full-time job, um, I worked at a, um, a company that made uh, products for Unix workstation. So I had a Unix workstation on my desk as my desktop as my first work experience. And, and you know, I didn't know the difference one to the other. I, I didn't grow up, you know, programming computers like kids do now. So it was a, a fantastic opportunity for me. Um, and then about halfway through my career, I, I worked the first half of my career in technology, doing software development projects and business systems analysis and testing and that sort of thing. And I got to the point where they were going to give me a second pager. So if you remember 1999, yeah. what, that, what, that, what that world looked like. And I was like, I don't think I need a second pager. So I did a little bit of a pivot, went into technical sales at that point. And um at the time, I, I said to the, the company I was working with, like, okay, I'm not sure I'm ready to let go of the hands-on technology, so I'll, I'll do this sales thing, but if I sell something I think is really cool, I want to be able to work on it, too. Well, I never went back and worked another operational project after that. I just went deep into the sales and and uh, and evolved from there and, again, sort of accidentally fell into government systems integration um, and spent the last 20 years uh, in government systems integration where my clients were primarily federal health entities, um, primarily military health and VA, as you mentioned, also the whole span of NIH and HHS entities and CMS. One of my favorite topics, honestly, is Medicare fraud. I could do a whole hour on Medicare fraud and not even take a breath, probably, because I don't think I took a breath this whole paragraph. So I'll pause for a second. <laughs> well, so let's uh, let's get to 2021. You know, we're a year into the pand pandemic. Uh, you're, as you said, uh, in one of the most sought after positions uh, in government inter integration. Um, 
business. Uh, he had a clear path, you know, up the corporate ladder. Uh, but you make a decision um, that you want to help small businesses. So what, talk to us about that and sort of what got you interested in uh, Ergonomics, for example. Yeah, I, you know, across the span of my career, I've worked in very large companies, you know, $13 billion company. I've worked in small startups as well. Matter of fact, in the 90s, I had 11 different employers in the span of 10 years. <laughs> and more than half of those went out of business in that span of 10 years, uh, which is, a, you know, there's a lot of learning experiences there when you, uh, when you have to have the discussion with your employer that, you know, you know, if, if you don't, make payroll, I won't work. Like this is a fundamental <laughs> consideration that we should have here. So I have, I have bills. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have bills. So if you want me to continue to work, you have to pay me. Uh, and I had I worked for employers that were making decisions like that, that who was going to get paid this week. And uh, you know, those experiences are very um obviously they happen at a very formative time, but I've always loved entrepreneurship and and being an entrepreneur. I even had uh, a company that I started when I was 19 and in college, and we had four other college um, uh, people or college age people who were who are our partners, and we launched a Christmas business, and we did over a hundred thousand dollars in our final year, and that was between Thanksgiving and Christmas, and we were standing out in the cold, uh, you know, in a parking lot like gypsies selling Christmas decorations. So it takes a lot of work to get to that number, to get to a hundred thousand dollars in that final year, um, and even in that experience like so many so many things in life like you learn from good experiences but you really really learn from bad experiences right so you can look at the good bosses you've had and say well that boss he was a really good boss but you can look at bad bosses that you've had and you'll be like i am never going to do the following five things to my employees that this guy did to me right and so those bad experiences early in your career and and, and that first um, business that i started back then we it closed on an on a bad experience and um i I've never taken away from that anything other than the learning <laughs> to say, okay, how do you manage a relationship to avoid that? But, you know, I love an underdog story, you know, as a Midwesterner, we want to see everybody win. We want to see everybody happy. And, um, and I love helping companies reach their potential. Um, and at this point in my life and, and, at, you know, at the point in 2021, when I walked away from my corporate job, uh, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. There was a, there's a COVID element to walking away from that job as well, that, um, I'd worked remote for over 20 years. And so it was kind of funny to me, everybody else was just sort of catching up to my way of life um, and learning how to work remote. And, and that was fantastic. Um, that eased so much. And I think there's so much value to that. Um, but, you know, I looked at, at where I was from a experience in, in a, a, what I can give back into the community. And, you know, even though my corporate job, I always felt like, what I was doing was creating jobs. Like I always think of sales as creating jobs, especially when you're working in a contracting environment or it's helping somebody keep a job. Like if it's a contract that's being recompeted, it's already your contract. People don't want to move jobs. They don't want to have to change. So I always viewed my job, not so much in terms of the bottom line that it would add to a $13 billion corporation, but more along the lines of, well, I know that Fred and Sarah would like to keep their jobs and I would like to help them keep their jobs. Um, but when I started looking at sort of the level of contribution and what was meaningful to me, 
I loved my team in my last role. I loved what we were doing in terms of developing that team and and bring some people forward career wise. Um, but the the work itself wasn't bringing me the level of fulfillment that I get now working with startups and really being able to share this really broad experience that I have. Um, and I was just talking to somebody yesterday who who you know may sign up with my consulting company and you know what I offer them is like a crash course accelerated experience to get them on a engagement strategy with federal agencies that they can do that in the in the space I, I can do that for them in the span of you know two to three months that would take them on their own probably two to three years and that's right? where you spent most of your career serving in those positions with those small businesses it's been primarily uh, DOD related, it, it looks like uh, veterans, it's obviously a, a, a passion of yours. Uh, uh, so you had a conversation or had conversations with uh, Ergonauts and much like what you're talking about now, you agreed to help with business development. Uh, and then, uh, you know, sort of everybody just saw what a, what a star you were and they said, you know, kind of come on board and, and, and you know, be a part of the team. So this is a, Ergonauts is a completely different industry for you. I, I think you would agree with that. Um, a lot of, you know, we live in a country where a lot of people can't say ergonomics, let alone define it or even run a company uh, that that focuses on it. So how's it going? How, how do you like it? How do you find it? Yeah, I mean, I it's been really interesting and I've really enjoyed sort of this stretch, you know, and, and in some ways it's less of a stretch than it might look like because um, fundamentally working in federal health, you know, we are working on programs that are designed to make people's lives better. Now, whether or not the federal programs achieve those goals, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, but that was what we were always supporting. You know, I never worked in a federal environment where I was designing a better gun or bomb or something like that. I was always working on projects and programs that were meaningful to me. And that, that remains one of my guiding principles is I, I really only work on things that are meaningful to me. If, if you look on my website for my consulting company, you'll also see that I also have a guiding principle that I don't work with assholes. And that's a super important principle now too. Um, so we keep those two things going on Ergonauts. For well, you reason. realize there's going to be some people watching this going, why is she talking to Earl Ray? Earl Ray. I, I just want you to know that. Yeah. So you, you definitely don't follow into that category but it is kind of funny when I say that to people because I, I lay that out early on in a conversation with somebody who's who's approached me to do business because of like let, let's be clear about this like you know if you can't be honest and upright and friendly and fun like don't bother because we, we don't got time for that no ain't nobody got time for that anymore right? right um but you know with ergonauts and and what really is inspiring about ergonauts um is not just you know, the dedication that Steve had to keep the company moving forward for as long as he did um, in the ways that he did, but also that, you know, fundamentally, we can improve people's lives and prevent injury and do business better. Like all those things actually come together. And I don't, I, I have a hard time coming up with anything else in business that you can do that actually both helps the bottom line and helps the humans that work for you with every dollar that you spent, right? Most of the time it's a very uneven kind of situation where you're helping the company, but you're screwing the employees or you're, you're trying to help the employees, but there's no clear benefit to the company, right? And if you take the, the view of enterprise ergonomics, you actually do both. And it's a fantastic message and it's a fantastic mission to take on, um, you know, and the, the work that we do and the, and the things that we engage ourselves in 
has to be about more than money. So, you know, one of the things I always ask people when I'm interviewing them uh, for a new job is I would say, well, where are you going to find joy in this role? Like people would sit down for an interview for a sales role and they're going to tell me about the gobzillions of dollars that they made and the, and the Rolodex of people, important people that they know. And that's good. Those are, you know, basic skills and qualifications. But if you can't tell me what you love about doing this particular job and you're just here for the money, that's a short-term relationship, you know, because especially in sales, the, the money fluctuates quite a bit. So, and you get a lot of rejection. So if you don't know why you're doing the thing you're doing and what brings you joy in that, it's, it's not going to last. And that those things come together really obviously for, for, for me with, with Ergonauts as well. So Ergonauts launched their technology platform. Uh, it's called obviously Ergo Algo Office, uh, September the 29th of last year. Uh, under your leadership. Uh, since that time, what have you learned about the market since our launch uh, that you didn't expect to learn? Uh, and, and where do you see this going, Nicole? It's been a it's been a really interesting launch. You know, we we underwent a massive redo on the programming and the platform itself prior to launch. So, you know, coming into it, we felt really strongly that our tools were, you know, ready. They're they're addressing the right market segment. We're doing the right things with them. You know, there's always a balance between the number of features and the and the capabilities versus let's get something out and get started with it. Um, so I we felt like we picked very much the right path. Um, in focusing in on the office ergonomics assessment, as well as the generating, you know, the automated reports and the content of that report that brings the greatest value. But, you know, so everybody launched it, we launched and we've got this great idea that we know what we're doing. And of course, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. So as soon as we launch, we, we start having conversations, we get great feedback and we start to discover that, you know, actually everybody who sees our tool loves our tool and it doesn't matter if they're you know a 15-year experienced ergonomist or if they're you know just getting started in health and safety and they have an idea what they do across the spectrum they love the tool there's something within it that will make everybody's job better no doubt and what we thought we were going to run into is great i have a team of safety people at this corporation let's train them let's get them started and let's start you know endeavoring to actually achieve an enterprise ergonomics program that to date hasn't been achievable because you could never get the quantity and quality of office ergonomic assessments needed to establish a baseline. But that's not what they said. Instead, they said, yeah, this is great. We really want to do it. All of our ergonomists or all of our safety people are already so tied up in our workers' comp claims and in our, our exceptional cases. We cannot get to a baseline evaluation. We can't even we can't even imagine it. However, could you do it for us? Could you take on the enterprise ergonomics force? Could you could you do a baseline assessment for all 20,000 of our employees across the globe? And it's like uh well, the answer is always yes. <laughs> so I'm going to say yes. And then we're going to come back and we're going to figure out how to do it. It's so, like they can't swim because I learned to swim because they're in a flood. Because they're already in a flood. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so, you know, what, what has happened is, you know, we continue to, to move forward as planned. We're expanding as planned. We've got um, ongoing investments in additional um, components of the, of the platform. We have had some really great feedback about enhancements we can do to the, to the initial office ergonomics. So we're continuing to invest in and enhance the product itself. And because of the feedback that we got from industry, we have pivoted just a little bit to start um, working through partnership programs that will allow us to bring large scale 
um, assessment to the table as an option, right? And obviously, Ergonauts is not hiring 10,000 people, you know, tomorrow to do that. But we do that through partnership with um, clinics or um, or occupational therapists or other entities that already have a nice footprint in the geographies that we're looking at and they use our tools to um to be able to perform assessments we run the ergonomic um the enterprise ergonomic program for them so it's you know one of the one of the things that that has always been true for me is like if you're not able to to fail fast then you should just get out of the way right so and we didn't fail so much as we discovered 12 new things we hadn't imagined right and that's always going to be true anytime you do something and you discovered that by listening to your customers obviously right. so what what are the customers telling you about uh, ergo algo's lean design so it's it's interesting because you know again that's one of those things that if if you know what lean means and you know um, all the different words, et cetera, then, you know, that, that becomes a whole different conversation. And the, the lean nerds like to geek out with each other and, and talk about how, um, how the, how the, the principles of lean have come together to create these great tools. Um, so, you know, for those people that they want to have, they want to hear all about the A3 process, et cetera. But, you know, for other people that aren't as familiar with lean, they, they get excited about when we translate for them that, well, you know, we used, uh, the lean principles to create a set of tools that prevents error, right? And keeps you focused on the work stream, gets rid of waste within the work stream. Like those are all words that everybody understands as well. You don't necessarily have to tell somebody that's a lean principle um, because they may or may not understand what that means, but they absolutely know what it means when you say, every one of your evaluations will be done in exactly the same manner with the same consistency and the same quality. And that's something that hasn't been achievable previously. And the underlying lean factors are what makes that possible within the tool set. So the magnitude of the problems that are associated with uh, poor ergonomics, it, it's huge. It's costly to employers. Um, you frequently talk about the millions of boomers uh, that are reaching retirement age. I think uh, I've heard you say it's uh, one every eight seconds or close to 11,000 a day. So with that in mind, what advice would you give to other CEOs that are either experiencing labor shortages or about to experience the inevitable labor shortage? You know, it's it's such an interesting time to be a leader right now when you talk about staffing and, and, and retention. And, you know, there's a Chinese curse that says, may you live in interesting times. Um, and I feel like a little bit of our times right now is kind of Chinese curse interesting. Um, but, you know, I want to believe I'm optimistic side believes that leadership has always actually cared about the humans that produce goods and services for them. But my pessimistic side, you know, there's plenty of examples. And I certainly have the experience of having felt like I was a, just one more cog in the in the machine, one more line on a spreadsheet. Right. And that's that's a, not a great feeling to have. But, you know, from my viewpoint, companies who are going to survive and ultimately win have to move past this sort of cog in the machine line on a spreadsheet mentality when it comes to their to their talent and and they also need to recognize that as this talent pool continues to age we will need to accommodate them before they create before injury is created as well 
And so it's not just, um, you know, in reaction to a workers' comp issue, but, you know, ultimately as, as I age and my, you know, my flexibility is reduced or I develop arthritis in certain joints, then giving me some accommodations so that I have maybe a desk that goes up and down and allows me to stand up and take a break from sitting or sit down, take a break from standing. Those kinds of things will go a really long way in improving, not just my productivity and my ability to stay employed with you but there's this period you know we measure we measure the impact of ergonomic um, injury based off of things like workers comp claims right and that is the cost of the claim plus the cost of fixing the human they don't we don't measure and i don't know that there's a way to do it but we don't measure you know the months or weeks before that injury occurs when jane was sitting at her desk complaining that her back hurt and then impacting the productivity about everybody else around her so there's this period of declining productivity not just for her but for everybody that has to listen to her complain yeah. right that if you again proactively went in and said jane how can we make your desk more comfortable how can we help prevent injury not only can you prevent the costly claim but she just prevented that period of downcline and everybody around her will see that you treated her in a humane and caring fashion and that's going to lift productivity everywhere and you know long-term employers i mean everybody knows it costs three times more to get a new employee than it does to retain the one you've got right and and as long as we keep that in mind retention has to move higher and higher and and those you know buying somebody a good chair is nowhere near the cost of you know having a pizza party every friday and probably creates a whole lot more goodwill than than that stupid pizza party every friday ever could um so you know it's it's a good investment across the board so for months uh we've got time for maybe a couple more questions i'm trying to hit a, a few highlights with you but for months uh, I've heard you use this term, democratizing ergonomics. Uh, obviously, with my political science background, that gets my ears perked, my antenna goes up. Uh, so talk about that a little bit. Then we're going to move into, um, this is the first uh, in our series, uh, in the podcast, we're, we're going to focus on women in leadership. So I'd like to hear about your democratizing uh, ergonomics idea. And then uh, we'll, I've got a question about, uh, you know, sort of where you see yourself uh, as a female in a leadership role and, and ask you about, um, about uh, some advice that you may have for, for other uh, female CEOs. So tell us about this. Uh, I mean, this, it's a great book title, just so right. you know, Democratizing right. Ergonomics. So let's hear it. Well, it's funny because I, I don't even know that I intended to use that word when I did. So, you know, if you tend to be sort of a glib person and and try to use stories to to evoke uh, understanding when you're talking to somebody, I, I think the term just slipped out of the deep recesses of my mind somewhere from, my, you know, 35 years ago, getting a political science degree. But there are a couple aspects of the phrase that that really do resonate with people. And I think it's really important. One is that you know the services that are needed to support better ergonomics enterprise ergonomics within a corporation have to this point been sort of um you know eliteified right only and only the people that are in the greatest amount of need um get those services but if we democratize that and we apply and spread evenly across the corporation ergonomic assessment and better office ergonomics then that's going to have an immediate impact on um 
the the quality of, of life within a company. So that, that's one aspect of the democratization. I've also found myself using it when we talk about creating a new um, army of evaluators, right? Because ergonomic evaluation, again, has been pushed up into this elite profile of people who've been in ergonomics for years and years and years. And our, preface, our premise is that if you take somebody who is um, a reasonably smart person, a reasonably good communicator, just your average worker, to be honest, right? No, not anything special necessarily, but you can train them and give them a set of tools and tell them what to do. And anybody can be an ergonomic evaluator at that point because the tools do the hard thinking. And then it's just up to the person to be able to follow the process and interact with the, the person being evaluated. So we can democratize not only the delivery of the services um, to the people that, you know, across the board who need them, but also democratize the um, the training and the availability and the education to be an evaluator. Um, so I think those two aspects come together on on that word. And, and uh, you know, it's it, whether or not it becomes a, a tagline or a book title, yeah, I guess we'll see in the future, you know. Obviously, you're a strong advocate for women in leadership, and uh, you show that by the example that you set. Uh, again, uh, you're the first in our Women in Leadership series of the podcast. We're going to do a few of those. So what career or life advice uh, would you give to uh, women uh, who are starting their careers and who share your vision for change? Because if you've, if you've been paying attention, folks, uh, this is a, a person who has a vision, vision for change. Uh, and the ability to uh, to guide people and lead people uh, uh, to that change. So what advice do you have? You know, it's 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 really hard to to go sort of broad brush and, and give advice to all women at once. But I am super excited and, uh, you know, I am re-energized um, on a daily basis by the people that I see who are coming in the generations behind us that, you know, I graduated from high school in the 80s to, to and I've cut my professional teeth still in the in the in the early 90s and it you know I think that there's a lot of people who would be stopped in their tracks with some of the stories I could tell them about the kinds of harassment and discrimination that I ran into and part of my process for dealing with that at the time was just like I'm just not going to stop so I put my head down put my horns out and I keep running through and and that's not always fun or certainly not pain, painless, but, you know, there comes a point when you can, um, you can get caught up in what the problem is, or you can just keep going and just don't stop and don't stop fighting. And I think that that is, you know, some of the things that have happened in, in, in the last few years, um, where we see rollbacks of women's rights and, and things like that, that are just incomprehensible you never would have imagined 10 years ago that some of the things that are happening today in terms of attacks upon human rights and and women's rights are, are occurring and it's really really depressing and we can't stop fighting and you have to keep going and keep believing that the fight that you're fighting is the right fight and you know i there have been a bunch of fights that i fought that i didn't win out at the level I wanted to, but I know the next person come along behind me is going to benefit from the fact that I fought that fight. And they might have to fight still too. And we might be fighting for three, four, five more generations, but we're not going to stop. And 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 you and you can't. And and the other piece about it too is that in in having that fight and continuing to push forward for pay equality, which you know, 
<laughs> pay equality has been stagnant for 20 years. Women are still sitting at about 80% of, of, of pay compared to men stagnant for 20 years, right? There's a part of that that is, that is incumbent upon us to know our value and demand our value as we go into these situations. And that can be super uncomfortable to do. And, and I've talked to plenty of men who are uncomfortable trying to negotiate for positions as well, but it comes down to education. It comes down to having the right language in your pocket. And then knowing that you are worth it. And, you know, as we move into the, the changes that are going to happen in this job market, women and, and anybody who's able to come in to do a job are going to be in higher demand. So fewer workers, more jobs. Now is the time to fight forward and demand, you know, equal pay. And whatever it is you think you should get paid, you probably should ask for 20% more because you're probably undervaluing yourself along the way. So, you know, I do a lot of work with, um, on the side, I help people with, you know, resumes as they're transitioning, especially out of the military, because I know so many people who are, who are active duty. And, you know, that is a conversation that I have all of the time about how do you go into a job situation and make sure you get what you're worth and make sure that you establish what it is you're there to do. Um, and, and that's, in, that's incumbent upon you as you go in. So just demand more and help out other people along the way. And that's how we're going to get there. What do you, uh, Nicole, what do you want your legacy to be in um, Ergo Life? What what do you want it to be? You know, I hope I have a few more years before I have a legacy. I hope that I'm not, tomorrow is not my legacy time. But but if I died today, um, you know, I know that part of my legacy and, and probably the part that I'm most proud of are the people that I've helped along the way um, and, and, you know, help them personally, help them professionally. Um, to change their careers and, and, and change their lives along the way, um, you know, and I'm, I'm grateful I have the gift of time that I can see that now that I've made that impact on somebody over time. Um, and my son just graduated from college with a degree in computer science and, and my other child just finished her first year in college. Um, so, you know, my see my legacy in creating a, a couple of human beings who are strong and capable and independent um, and have been since about the age of 10. Uh, and I'm really, really excited to see what kind of productive humans they become in, in the world that we have today. Um, and, you know, I think from an ergonomics perspective, I think we're going to redefine what people and what the world thinks of when they think of ergonomics um, in the next few years. And we're applying it in ways that nobody's expecting it right now. Um, and some of the products that we're developing and some of the platform additions that we're doing right now, um, you know, ergonomics is really about improving how a person interacts with their environment and applying that across that broader spectrum is, is super exciting. Um, and I hope in five years, we have statistics that show that we really improve the world and we really improve people's lives. Uh, and I think we will, because we're, we're working with a client set who, who wants to see that as well. Excuse me. So I, I'm really excited about that. See that, folks? I told you, she's amazing. I'm telling you. Uh, you probably see why I'm a Nicole, a Nicole fan. So thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it's The time's actually gone by uh, way too fast. Uh, we covered a lot of ground. I really appreciate uh, your preparation for this. I appreciate your, your leadership and your willingness to get out and to talk about the, you know, what are what ergonomics uh, can do for employers, what it can do for employees, uh, and then how Ergonauts is, uh, you know, leading that charge. So thank you very much for your time today. We appreciate it. 
Well, thank you, Earl Ray. You're a, you're a lovely host. So I appreciate well, thank that. You. Hey, folks, go to www.k9forwarriors.com in the notes. Tell them Nicole K sent you. Uh, Make a donation. Uh, You'll change somebody's life. <laughs> so we appreciate your time. And until next time, everybody, be good to each other. Thank you.